The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Two weeks ago, I spoke to you from Isaiah 40, and I'd ask you to turn there again. It's been a gap in between our looking at this, but I intended to look at it again next Sunday, Lord willing. A chapter of prophecy that's a landmark chapter in the whole Old Testament, really, looking forward to what God does in liberation and tender nurture and restoration of his people. And it's a chapter that truly does look forward to Jesus Christ. I think what I'll do is back up and read verses 1 to 5 that we looked at last time because it's a unit. However, my consideration this morning is with verses 6 through 11. God's Word from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert says, Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, Lift your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs, in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is our God's holy and inspired word, eternal in all its truth and ever alive in what it speaks to people of faith. The choir this morning changed their anthem. I thank them for that flexibility. They changed it 
I guess primarily because they saw the title of my sermon and saw that they had an anthem that they could put with it. The Christmas carol that we know as Go Tell It on the Mountain had roots in a spiritual song originally sung by African-American slaves. And it wasn't until a man named John Wesley Work, an academic man, an academic musician apparently, published this song through the auspices of Fisk University in 1907 that it became known in the wider public. So if you think about it, this Christmas carol, uniquely American, so many of them are English or German in origin, this is American, is only 102 years old. That makes it a positive youngster among Christmas carols, many of which go back several centuries. It heralds the message, tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Tell it from a high place, Jesus Christ is born. That truth has its origin in large part in the text I read this morning. Isaiah 40 verse 9 speaks about good tidings spoken from a high mountain. Now, Old Testament prophets, at least many of them, are known for their visions and revelations that come in pictorial form. In a book like Ezekiel, for example, we have sometimes almost bizarre pictures that predict things, pictures that are hard to relate to reality without some careful thought and and deep study of Scripture. But this passage that we're looking at today, Isaiah 46 to 11, I would say is a passage that is not visual. It's not an uh, artistic painting. It's, it's not a video image. It's an auditory passage. It's meant to be heard. There are voices echoing through this entire passage, almost like some kind of an echo chamber. Mysterious voices breaking out in the earlier first five verses. They have the message in verse 1 of, comfort to God's people coming out of captivity. In verse 3, the message, in the desert, prepare a highway for God. And now in verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And Isaiah responded and said, what should I cry? We believe that what follows that from the middle of verse 6 downward is the answer to what should I cry. Here's what you should cry. Here's what you should make known, in other words, the Scripture is saying. Now, last time as we considered the first five verses, I said to you that maybe it seems remarkable if you read through this chapter that this chapter does not mention Christ. It does not say Messiah. And in that sense, perhaps it's a more indirect prophecy. And yet, as you read it, we have no doubt at all that the things that are being predicted in this chapter— were fulfilled in the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are the way in which these things that the prophet looked for by the Spirit of God inspiring him were answered and were fulfilled. The situation was that Israel and Judah's great sin had brought them into captivity by foreign nations. When Isaiah wrote chapter 40, it hadn't yet happened for Judah, the southern nation. But he prophesied not only that it would happen but that the result of it, as it ended, would be that God 
would nurture and draw his people back. You see, what hope, if the people would have heard this, what hope they could have had, even in dreary, terrible years of being a captive nation. Our God is going to restore us from this terrible fortune that we have suffered. And maybe they would even think to themselves, we suffered it because of our own sins. God would comfort them. Their sin had been paid for. Now, we know Jesus did that on Calvary. There's no other event in the Bible that fulfills payment for sin. And in that sense, this looks forward to the gospel. Jesus is the one who came to pave a highway from God to our hearts. He is the way of the Lord, fulfilling that prophecy in the first five verses. And he is the glory of the Lord that verse 5 was talking about, revealed to mankind. I have no doubt at all that Isaiah 40 is about Christ Jesus coming in the power and blessing from God to needy people, people who are shocked by their condition in the world, people who are reeling, broken, helpless by various things that have taken them captive. They don't know where to turn. They don't know how to help themselves. But the Lord in this passage announces he will do what human strength and human ingenuity cannot do for ourselves. These tidings promised here go out to people today who may equally be shattered and broken and hurting in our world. And they tell us that when God intends to come to men, there's nothing that can stop him. He will level mountains to get to us. He will pave a way coming into our hearts and the crooked things in us will be straightened out. He will change. His power will do what he promises. Isaiah 40 trumpets the message over and over again in various ways saying, behold your God. If you want to read further in this chapter, I'm not going to cover every detail of it next week, but over and over again the prophet says, what a God we have. Who is like him? He's incomparable. But today we look at this beginning here in verse 6 as the voice, unidentified voice, but of course, ultimately from God. The Spirit of God was the voice speaking and told the prophet, cry out. And the prophet said, what should I cry? And I believe what follows from there is what the prophet was given to cry out in several parts. First of all, verses 6b through Verse 8, tell us one thing that needs to be cried out to this world, and that is that God's supernatural Word never stops speaking. You read that in verse 6, all men are like grass, their glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. We're told that the God being declared here is a God who reveals himself, a God who speaks in propositional language, who conveys truth in ways human beings can understand it. We can't understand the process by which he does it. It's a mysterious process by which his word was inspired as holy men of God were taken hold of and given oracles, given things to say that, yes, their character and their fingerprints are are on it, but it's God's truth. And therefore, it's something alive, something unlike mere human speech. Do you ever think about how many words flow out into this world every single day, and it's getting worse and worse as technology takes hold? 
All of our teenagers have sore thumbs. You know what they're doing. Words, 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 you know. Oh, did you see him? Oh, did you talk to her? Hey, what about this? Hey, I'm getting my hair done. Words pour out. They pour out. Term papers, laws being written. Billions and billions of words, political speeches. Words like a Niagara out of all of us, just pouring out there into the ether. And you might ask yourself sometime, how many of the words that human beings speak are lasting words? How many sentences that we speak are are something that we have any reason to revisit, even in a week, let alone a year, let alone a century? Our words are very temporary, this is telling us. We're human beings. We're like grass that in the summer might go dry and dry up or be cut down. We're like flowers that bloom for a little time, then we're gone. I was amused, and I'm sure some of you were, by the news report this past week about one senator apparently stumping his colleagues by insisting that a rule be followed in Congress, a rule which said that if any lawmaker desires it, a bill being dealt with has to be read in its entirety. And the senator insisted that an 800-page bill be read. Everybody was mad. Everybody was mad. Why would you stall us like that? Do you really think, I think they were saying, do you really believe that some clause on page 732 is important? They were saying the details of our words don't matter. Just go with it. You know, just join the party and do the thing. Don't worry about the details of words, they were saying. Well, in contrast, every word God ever speaks is an important word, and it's a word that is alive and vital and pulsing with his power to work change in us, to tell us who he is, and then as we respond in faith to make us like himself as he gives us new life. His word is living and powerful, we read from Paul in the New Testament. There's so many things you can do with human words. There's so many people I admire who know how to use words well. John Updike, a great author of novels from nearby Shillington, Pennsylvania, died this past year. I, I see, I, I have to say this, to me, John Updike was a tragedy. I don't think any man I can think of wrote fiction with more absolutely stunning ability to use words and convey images that I know of in in modern genre of fiction. I think he he was a master. But the man wrote about trash in most of his books. Words that glowed and that painted pictures, but they were used to convey things of so little importance and such little value in any redeeming way. How people can use words. You can think of people who make their living with words. Jay Leno, Rush Limbaugh, Peggy Noonan, J.K. Rowling, go on and on. Words and words and words. And some are entertaining. Some are inspirational. Some might be moving. They might even help shape people in their opinions and their thinking. But you know how few people can really write anything that's going to be around for a couple centuries. We only have so many Emily Dickinsons and Shakespeare's and Abraham Lincoln's. 
human words are passing things in comparison to the word of our God that is durable because it ever lives. God caused his truth to be written down in Scripture, and he bound himself to it. He, in effect, said, here it is. This is my oath. What I have said here is true. It will happen. You can trust it. Jesus said in John 10, 35, Scripture cannot be broken. It's a seamless document, in other words. Old Testament and New, it's one document because it has one author. And in total contrast to man's brief habit of babbling things that matter so little, God is never going to change his mind about anything he said in his word. He has sworn that it's true. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians 1, he says that in the appearance of Jesus Christ, his promises had their seal put upon them. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. The other day, I made a very rare trek to the mall. Every once in a while, I just go to see if the place is still there. And it was surprisingly busy for a recession. I don't know where all the money's coming from. But I was looking around, and I saw something I hadn't seen in the mall before, a rather large series of advertising signs. They're probably about four feet square, very colorful signs. And a particular institution that you don't usually think of as doing advertising in the mall had a couple of these signs. It was the theological seminary in our city that was advertising itself. And I stopped and looked at it for a minute, and I was kind of fascinated to see that this institution was recruiting its students by saying this, we help you discover your theological voice. We help you discover your theological voice. Anybody hear anything wrong with that? Isaiah did. Isaiah wrote to say that the one tremendous, unique voice that matters is not the little voice inside me that has to be coached and drawn out. It is God Most High who spoke truth once and for all in the miracle of his scripture. It's not the voice in you that has to be heard. It's the voice of God speaking to you that needs to be heard. Later on in this same book, Isaiah 55, 11, has the Lord saying how effectual and sufficient his word is. There we read every word that goes out of my mouth, the Lord says, won't return to me empty. I don't speak out into the air and worry that no one will hear it or no one will respond. The Lord says, it will accomplish what I desire of it and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So the first thing I believe the prophet was told to cry out here is that God's supernatural word never stops speaking. And if you and I don't know with any certainty what God has had to say, then we likewise will have very little to say in this generation that anybody needs to hear. But the amazing thing is, and it's a thrill to realize, that if we will take up God's Word and restate it to others and say, did you know, whether you do it in a Christmas card, whether you do it in personal witness, whether you just have a Bible study or or whatever, ways in which you in your relationships say, say, did you know God's Word says this? 
And when you speak that way, you are speaking things that affect time and eternity. Real lives are affected by that because you're speaking God's living word. Our little words can have lasting effects when they echo God's own precious speech. Now, Isaiah 40 verse 9 tells us to lift up our voices with a shout and say to people, here is your God. That's what the prophet was told to do in in, uh, verse 9. And then I think in verse 10, a second truth that should be cried out is told here. What should I cry? Here's another thing, verse 10. Not only the first, that God's supernatural word never stops speaking, but now God's almighty power never stops working. Behold, it says, the sovereign God comes with power. His arm rules for him, and his reward is with him. How many times does Scripture call God the Almighty? God Almighty. Because nothing thwarts him. Nothing intimidates him. If he decides to accomplish something, it will be accomplished. Can you say that about yourself? I decide to accomplish things all the time that either I just don't follow through on or I try to do and I find to be too hard. That doesn't happen to God. When he purposes to do something, it's as good as done because there's no object, there's no force, there's no rival to him in heaven or earth that can alter the outcome of what he plans to do. The rebellion of Satan, human sin, death in the grave, these are all things that oppose the purposes of God. And and human beings are certainly stymied by those things. We come up against the power of Satan and the sin in our own lives and, and what death does in our bodies or to us ultimately. And we say, I can't defeat that. But you see, To overcome these things would require the most stupendous show of force in the universe. What's the greatest force you can imagine in the universe? Well, I would think that would take you back to page one of the Bible, and you would think of the Creator God who spoke the universe and time and space into existence. How? By His Word. A God who can do that is the Almighty. And therefore, Isaiah says, in what God intends to do in the future here for broken people as he comes to them and as he speaks his word, he's going to do in his almighty power. And he uses this phrase, his strong arm rules for him. You know, we we probably tend to think that many of the more spectacular displays of God's power were all Old Testament. If I asked you to, okay, from what you know of the Bible, make a list. List ten items where God displayed mighty power in the Old Testament. Well, you might think of plagues upon Egypt. You might think of opening of the Red Sea. You might think of the few scattered incidences with the Elijah where people were called back to life. You might think of the fire and thunder at Mount Sinai as the law was given and others like that. And you think, well, boy, that's mostly Old Testament. I think of times when when enemies fighting against God's people were thrown into some kind of confusion and and nobody even understood it without the Israelites hacking their swords at all. the, The enemies started fighting each other and running away. 
because the power of God worked among them. Now, maybe you say that's all Old Testament. That's where you look for displays of the power of God. But I believe here in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, verse 10, is telling us about the greatest display of God's power that's going to be absolutely unique, and it would come in the New Testament. And when it came at first, it didn't look powerful. It didn't look mighty. It looked as absolutely insignificant as anything could possibly be because it was the birth of a baby to a peasant woman in strange circumstances where there wasn't even shelter in polite society for her to bear her child. But there was born in abject weakness and quietness the greatest power God ever turned loose. Power that focused on its object. You know, if you're a student of science fiction, sometimes the science fiction stories have these these huge uh, laser beams, you know, that can shoot out into space and destroy a planet or a space station or something. Well, that doesn't even begin to capture the quality of power that God unleashed in the little baby that Mary and Joseph called Yeshua. I think of a story, a true story. We heard about it in a Sunday night sermon just a couple of weeks ago. The hero Samson in the Old Testament. Samson doing unbelievable. I mean, he was, he was a living man who would have been, you know, he would have had a comic book today because he would have been a superhero. And there's a true story of Samson picking up a, a broken jawbone of a donkey laying on the ground and using that instrument to kill 1,000 Philistines. Wow, what a superhero. What a stunning victory. Who could match a show of power like that? And we listen to our president and our military chiefs of staff asking the question, how many armed forces are going to be enough to send to win a war in a far-off land where the enemy doesn't line up and march after us? He's mostly hidden, and he uses suicide tactics, and he's very hard to fight. How many, how much power do we have to summon to defeat this enemy? Let this be said. Humanity's war against sin and death did not require a troop surge. It required an army of one. One who came in weakness, but worked in the almighty power of God, and he was the New Testament version of Samson. Jesus Christ, conquering coming as God ordained to smash our sin and trounce the enemy of our souls and win a great victory. And he was the one who could tell his father the night before his death. He hadn't yet gone through the cross. He hadn't yet risen from the grave. But he could say, I have finished the work you came for me to do. I finished it. It's as good as done, Father, because it's your power that will do it. And so he could say in his risen appearance at the very end of Matthew, all power is given to me now in heaven and on earth. The mighty power of God was in Jesus Christ. And and it's no little thing to notice the end of verse 10 here where it says his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. What does that mean? That means the object of what he came to do is visible. His reward was the redeemed people he came to win. Israel, Judah, those who believed in Christ, 
and you and I who see him as our mighty liberator from the shackles of sin. It's as if Christ here is leading a great procession of captives back home to God. His reward is with him. Now hold that picture of Christ as God's mighty warrior in your mind for a second as we go to the last verse here today, verse 11. Keep it in mind, the New Testament Samson, the great warrior. But then see this contrast as it says, he, this God who's going to appear in history, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He gathers lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The third truth I see in this passage that Isaiah cried forth and we ought to be ready to cry forth and celebrate ourselves is this. Christ, the gentle shepherd, never ceases to nurture his own. There's a paradox here, what we would call a paradox. It's telling us that Christ is the mighty champion, but he's also the tender, caring shepherd. The same person is both of those things. This is two sides of one Christ. And Isaiah is, is addressing, remember who he was addressing, people who would be coming out of captivity, people who had no national pride anymore, people who had, had lived in a foreign country with ugly idol gods thrown in their faces all the time, people who hadn't been allowed to, to fellowship or openly worship, people who no longer were clearly focused on God at all, and they were bewildered and they were hurt and they were stunned and exhausted and disoriented. Now, people like that need a liberator to set them free. Be sure of it. But they also need a shepherd who comes and binds up their wounds and tenderly meets them and says, I don't expect very much from you, and I'm willing to provide what you can't provide for yourself. And it's no leap of either intellect or theology to go from Isaiah 40, verse 11, into John chapter 10. As Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the great shepherd of the sheep. He said there he would lay down his life for the sheep. He said he would call them by name and they would respond to him. He said he would lead them in and out to find pasture, to feed them, to care for them. So even in this Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah foretells the intimacy and the tenderness that we can expect in relationship to Jesus Christ. You know, of course, to be a Christian is to be in personal relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It means trusting him, that he was a strong enough warrior to win a victory that you couldn't win for yourself. And calling him my Lord means to realize he that sits at the right hand of the Father to intercede for you is also this shepherd. The shepherd who has to understand his flock. Shepherds don't drive their flocks relentlessly, they have to know how much the sheep can take, how weak they are, what their fallibilities are, and they've got to be ready to understand that or they'll destroy their flock. You have to understand you have a shepherd, Christian, who knows your weakness. I hope you have weaknesses. He knows you do whether you do or not. And he knows what they look like. He knows all that messed up stuff in your life that you wouldn't even tell your best friend about. And he's not put off by it. He's prepared to meet it 
to forgive it, to heal it. You, in fact, are one of his prized possessions. You are one who's among that reward spoken about in verse 10. Those captives that he's leading in triumph to his father. Let me put it in an image maybe Pennsylvanians can understand. You can expect Christ, your shepherd, to be to you like the scene that you might have in your mind of a Pennsylvania farm youth who's preparing a prize lamb for the January farm show in Harrisburg. What kind of treatment is that lamb getting these days? Well, he's being fed on a very careful diet. Nothing harmful comes around him anywhere. The coat of that lamb is is being groomed and, and carefully cut and everything to look perfect. Every measure of veterinary care is being brought to bear. Why? Because we want that lamb to win a prize. Well, Christ already knows that his lambs have won the prize. He won it for them. He knows that the result of them being with their father in eternity is a sure thing because he accomplished it. And so he promises with great assurance that until then, until the final hour of accomplishment of what he came to do is complete, he's going to be with his flock every hour that they live. He's going to be with them to protect and heal and forgive and keep them. I will be with you till the end of the world, he said. The prophet Micah chapter 7 records there that God, it is said, delights to show compassion on us. And it adds, he will tread our sins underfoot and hurl them into the depths of the sea. Elsewhere in Isaiah, it says, the bruised reed he will not break, the smoldering wick he will not snuff out, the life that is so far gone, so badly hurt and battered that it's just about at the edge of extinction He specializes in caring for and nurturing because he is the shepherd who never ceases to nurture his own. Well, these are the things Isaiah cried out here in this short section. Behold your God. He never stops speaking a supernatural word. He never stops showing his arm of power until his objective is accomplished. And he never stops nurturing those he intends to save. This mighty God, Isaiah foretold, was none other than Jesus, born so lowly in Bethlehem to do all these things. And I believe an upshot of our text is when you and I have learned that message by faith, then it's our turn to shout. It's our turn to bellow out, Hallelujah! It's our turn to whisper and speak in articulate and personal ways to others about this Lord we have found. And the message we bear as we go and stand on our mountain and shout what we have learned is, Behold, my God has come. His name is Jesus, the fulfiller of every promise. He came as he said he would so long ago. Thanks be to God for this. Our Father, we pray that the joy of Christ would be upon us. The satisfaction 
of an accomplished salvation would be our security. The shout of hallelujah would rise from us as a natural thing when we think of the wonders you predicted and the wonders that you did in the Lord Jesus for us. We praise you in his name. Amen.